Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to Elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the show... A lady I talked to, she suffered for 10 years with a prolapse, finally done something about it, and 10 years of hell, like, of not being able to control her bladder for 10 years, and she's been miserable, and she's only finally just getting help. Like, it just makes me really sad for women. For hundreds of women in regional areas, roadside births are now a reality. With the closure of health services on the rise, what are the risks for women and babies amid Queensland's rural maternity crisis? Also, how does music inspire conversation around reconciliation? We hear from a First Nations artist ahead of his concert. And later in the show... So this practice of violence on women in prison that's supported by the state continues to harm women when this state in particular has supposedly championed to end the violence against women, but not for women in prison. A human rights review calls for an end to strip searching in women's prisons, revealing the procedure is traumatic and ineffective. But a human rights advocate says more is needed for the immediate abolition of the practice. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, the federal government says improved literacy and numeracy skills amongst Indigenous children would be just one benefit of a voice to Parliament. Five of the Closing the Gap targets centre on access to education, literacy and numeracy skills. Federal Education Minister Jason Clare says one in three Indigenous children are below the NAPLAN standards, and if they're behind in primary school, they're unlikely to catch up. National Radio News reporter Laura Denvoy started asking Minister Jason Clare how education policy will change if the voice referendum is successful. Today, if you're a young Indigenous person, you're less likely to go to preschool. You're more likely to fall behind at primary school. You're less likely to finish high school than other kids. And if you're a young Indigenous man, you're more likely to go to jail than to go to university. Uh, And just think about if that was your child or if that was your life. You wouldn't want that for your family and Indigenous people don't want that either. This is a chance to change that. If you listen to people, you tend to make better decisions and get better results. By bringing together good advice from people across Australia, we can do something positive to not just improve infant mortality rates and reduce suicide rates. We can get more kids to school and make sure that kids at school get better results, make our communities healthier and make our communities safer. That's not going to make anyone's life worse. It's going to make life better for a lot of Indigenous Australians. So I remember when I was in primary school, it wasn't... I mean, it was quite a while ago now, but we didn't really learn heaps about Indigenous culture and closing the gap and things like that. We knew a little bit, but not that much. So how would a voice advise on the curriculum? There's more and more in the curriculum now to tell us the full story of Australia. The fact that Australia didn't start when Captain Cook arrived, that our history is a rich one and a long one, that the Australian story goes back 60,000 years. This referendum is a chance to put something in our constitution that really should have been in our constitution when it was written 122 years ago, and that is to recognise the fact that Indigenous Australians have been here all that time. We should have done it 122 years ago. We get a chance to do that in a couple of weeks' time. 
And Aussies are fair people. You know, we believe in fairness. And I think it's fair enough that we should recognise in the Constitution our full history. It's just a fact. And this referendum is a chance to put that in writing. So we know through some of the closing the gap targets, you know, Indigenous kids, getting them into preschool, getting them to finish high school, getting them to improve their literacy and numeracy and other educational skills. How would a voice help to do that? You're right. As I pointed out a moment ago, literacy and numeracy rates for Indigenous kids are worse than for other children on average. One in 10 children in Australia are below the NAPLAN standards for literacy and numeracy. One in three Indigenous kids are below that standard. And only one in five children who are below that minimum standard when they're little, when they're eight years old, are above that minimum standard when they're 15. Only one in five. And for Indigenous kids, it's only one in 17. So that's why a lot of young Indigenous people don't finish school. Now, if you're going to fix this, it's not just what happens inside the classroom that counts. It's got a lot to do with how healthy you are, the bed you sleep in and the roof over your head, whether mum and dad have got a job. You know, if you're sick and can't come to school, you can't learn. If you're not living in a safe place, you're less likely to be able to focus when you get to school. And if mum and dad don't have money in their pocket to put food on the table, then that has an impact as well. And what The Voice is about is bringing this all together. Ideas around health and housing and employment as well as education, all of those things that have an impact on a child's life. And if you get that right, then you can have a big impact on a young person's success at school and success in life. Are you concerned about the potential for those closing the gap targets not being met if the referendum is not successful? I'm concerned that they're not being met now. You know, politicians have been setting targets and not meeting them now for a decade. Politicians have failed on this and failed miserably. And voting no means that we're trusting politicians to get this right on their own. And history says that that's a bad idea. You know, the important thing to emphasise here is the voice is not the idea of politicians in Canberra. And thank God for that, because politicians have failed. The voice is the idea of Indigenous Australians from right across the country that have said, we want to close the gap, and the best way to close the gap is to listen to us. And so that's what we want to do here, create an advisory committee that creates the environment where we can get the best information to make the best decisions so we can close the gap. Federal Education Minister Jason Clare, ending the story from National Radio News, Laura Denvoy. No mum-to-be wants to give birth on the side of the road, but this is the reality for many women living in regional and rural areas. With the list of health service closures growing, Queensland's rural maternity crisis is putting the lives of women and babies at risk. The Wise contributor from The Source News, Perry Moller, has the story. The baby crying isn't usually heard alongside the sound of cars driving past. But according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare in 2021, 443 new mothers, fathers and other family members in rural Queensland experienced this when their babies were born before arrival, also known as BBA. These statistics have been widely recognised as being representative of the increasing maternal health crisis in rural Queensland. Queensland Shadow Minister for Health, Ambulance Services and Women, Ros Bates, said that since 1998, Labor has closed 37 Queensland maternity wards, 
Here she is listing those wards. So these include Babinda, Mossman, Yapoon, Mount Morgan, Maura, Springshaw, Balcolden, Blackhall, Winton, Jandowie, Miles, Taroom, Texas, Wandai, Bowen, Claremont, Collinsville, Dysart, Murrumbah, Kilcoy, Mullaney, Mitchell, Quilpie, Weeper, Gainder, Maryborough, Moncho, Mundubbera, Gatton, Tully, Theodore, Nambour, Cunnamulla and Charters Towers. Dr Hazel Keedle who was the lead researcher on Australia's largest maternity experience survey ever done, had this to say about birth trauma and obstetric violence. And we have about one in three women experiencing birth trauma across Australia and one in ten women experiencing obstetric violence. Don't believe the statistics? Here's Mel Nielsen talking about her experience accessing help for a pelvic prolapse after a traumatic birth in 2018. Mel lives on a remote cattle station in North Queensland. Uh, at six weeks... Uh, I went to my GP for the six-week checkup that we all are supposed to go for, and I said to her explicitly, I'm like, I have a prolapse. I am struggling to hold my insides in. I'm so uncomfortable. Um, you know, can you check it out for me and offer me, you know, tell me where, what to do, where to go, how I should go about my recovery? And she checked me and said, no, it's fine. It's completely normal for someone, same thing, your age, third baby, you just have to give it time and it'll heal, um, hopefully. And then she didn't think there was an issue and I was like there is an issue like I'm literally when I was waiting for her for my appointment I was literally standing in the waiting room with my legs crossed trying to hold my insides in. Or Keisha White's experience in a rural central Queensland hospital where she nearly bled to death from a postpartum haemorrhage. The doctor had come back up near me and she said Keisha can you hear me? I said yes and she goes I might need to take out your uterus to save your life is that fine? And I said yep that's all good. And I said to Lucas, which is Dawson's dad, I said, come here, um, look after my baby. Like, I'm going to die today. Fortunately, the doctor saved both Keisha's life and her uterus. However, the trauma both these women endured has stayed with them. Both Mel and Keisha agree that their separate post-birth catastrophes could have been prevented with better post and prenatal care in rural Queensland. I get quite emotional about it. Yeah, I get, I feel, I feel really sad that we're not educated about it, but I get really, probably get angry more than anything because I think, what is going on? And I think it has a lot to do with letting mothers do what they naturally um, need to do when birthing a baby. I think it's a lot of, um, a lack, it's just a lack of education. It's a lack of talking about it. You know, there's <clears throat> a lady I talked to, she's suffered for 10 years with a prolapse, finally done something about it, and 10 years of hell, like, of not being able to control her bladder for 10 years and she's been miserable and she's only finally just getting help. Like, it just makes me really sad for women that we, yeah, that no one's talking about it and they're not offering us rehabilitation of our bodies postpartum. This needs to change, really. That's just my opinion on it. I think it just needs to be better. We need people, we need more midwives. We need, you know, more equipment, like better facilities. And I think they need training, honestly. In a joint statement, the Queensland Premier, Treasurer and the Minister for Health and Women, Shannon Venterman, announced in June that $42 million would be provided over a period of four years to expand rural and regional birthing services. Only time will tell if the funding will be adequate. Both the Minister for Health and the Assistant Minister for Health in Queensland were contacted for comment, to no avail. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Programme. They don't just strip away your clothes, they strip away your dignity. 
Those are the words from a woman in Queensland's carceral system in a review published by the Queensland Human Rights Commission. The review was conducted along with Queensland Corrective Services, who say they're committed to improving outcomes for incarcerated women. The report makes 24 recommendations, calling for an end to the practice. But human rights advocate and Sisters Inside CEO Debbie Kilroy says recommendations don't go far enough in ending the violence against women, and immediate abolition of the practice is needed. So how did the review eventuate? Debbie Kilroy has more. This review has come about after over 30 years of agitation by Sisters Inside to abolish the state sexually assaulting women in prison through the process of strip searching. So we agitated in the early 2000s to the Anti-Discrimination Commission to do a review of women in prison of all systemic issues. Strip searching was one of those issues. They released a report on International Women's Day in 2006, which was tabled in Parliament. Those recommendations sat, gathered dust, and what we saw is the ongoing mass incarceration of women, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. So we pushed again for the Anti-Discrimination Commission to do a 10-year review. That was undertaken and tabled about 12, 13 years later. And still the same systemic issues were plagued within the women's prison system. Then we saw over the years where we agitated with the government and a task force was set up, set up a women's justice and safety task force, where a recommendation came out of that to review the practices of strip searching. This is where the Human Rights Commission have undertaken the report. That's the report that we're talking about today. And why is this review so important? The report is important, but I don't believe the report has gone far enough. For a supposed independent body, the Human Rights Commission, they have not called for the immediate abolishment of the practice of strip searching, which is nothing more than sexual assault by the state, where we see the evidence in that report alone and the evidence that Sisters Inside has gathered over decades through right to information. The policy of stopping contraband going into the women's prison, it's a failure, an absolute failure, And what it does is traumatises women because the evidence is is that contraband found is about 0.01%. But corrective services continue to maintain that social control through that failed policy to continue to sexually assault women in prison. When we know that over 89% of women in prison are survivors of horrific rape and sexual assault. And this process of strip searching is nothing more than sexual assault by the state. And it must be abolished today. The Human Rights Commission did not go far enough. They worked alongside corrective services and corrective services once again leads the charge to maintain this disgusting policy that sexually assaults women in prison. How are strip searching policies and practices in women's prisons in Queensland currently matching up to legislation in terms of human rights compatibility? as the Human Rights Commission has stated, that it does match up because they call it a dignified strip search in the legislation. But let me explain to your listeners what a dignified strip search is. That's where you take the bottom half of your clothes off. If you're menstruating, you need to remove your tampon or your pad and hand it over to the prison officer. Then you may be given your underwear back. Then you're asked to take the top half of your clothes off the bra and then you may be handed that back. And in some occasions, you're asked to squat and cough. So it's the most degrading, inhumane practice within any prison system around the world and it must be abolished everywhere. The review highlights that 89% of women in Queensland prisons have experienced physical violence, domestic violence or child abuse. What are some of the impacts this procedure has had on emotional, psychological and social well-being of some of these women? So this practice of violence on women in prison 
that's supported by the state continues to harm women when this state in particular has supposedly championed to end the violence against women but not for women in prison that's the reality we know that women tell family members tell their children not to come and visit them because they do not want to go through this process of sexual assault by the state we know international research even research here in this state states very clearly that Family connection and connection to your children is actually a supportive process when someone leaves prison. When we have women who do not want to be sexually assaulted through the process of strip searching and they tell their family, their children not to come and visit, that those relationships become more distant. What also happens if the woman in prison's children have been taken by the family policing system, it then appears in affidavits that women did not want to have contact with their children and it is used in a negative way against them in those child protection court proceedings where what it actually is is a woman trying to protect herself and not be further violated by the state through strip searching. And I understand Sisters Inside were one of the organisations consulted during the process of the review. What insight were you able to offer throughout that whole process? We were fairly and squarely very clear with the people that came here from the Human Rights Commission that strip searching must be abolished and there was no negotiation about that we were asked whether there'd be a nicer way to do that is there a different way to do that is there a more appropriate way to do that the answer was no no and no it must be abolished so we weren't interested in negotiating with the human rights commission about how to do strip searching in a better way it was about abolishing strip searching full stop to end sexual violence by the state like you mentioned before, the review shows that strip searches are ineffective in making prisons safer with a contraband de- detection rate of just 0.01% to 0.015%. From your experience working in the space, what is the dominant argument for sustaining the practice for so long? Well, corrective services dominate in government, full stop, no matter where you are, and particularly corrective services here in Queensland. And this is a problem about not only the prison system, but also police systems, that no one is willing to take them and challenge them about their practices because they believe what they're doing is what's needed to be done. They're not interested about the violence that they perpetrate against women inside, and this is an issue. They have fluffy marketing on their website about rehabilitation of women and gendered focused etc etc but when you go into women's prison you see very clearly that the violence continues to be perpetrated against women inside this practice is proven through evidence that it actually does not stop contraband coming in the prison so on their own evidence it must be abolished we must abolish strip searching because it's sexual assault by the state. The review makes 24 recommendations. Can you make any comment or speculation on how these could enact change? Well, the only way to enact change is to abolish strip searching. There should have been one recommendation and one recommendation only, and that's to abolish strip searching. They did go down the rabbit hole of a body scanner. Now, body scanners have been on the agenda of corrective services since Keith Hamburger was the Director General back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it's surprising, well, not really, it's about the marketing again, how corrective services that we will purchase a body scanner for next year in one prison. They could have purchased body scanners 30 years ago and they refused to do so. So this is about a fluff piece of marketing that the Human Rights Commission has been part of with corrective services. And as I said before, the only recommendation must be to abolish sexual assault by the state through the policy of strip searching women in prison.
Human rights advocate and Sisters Inside CEO Debbie Kilroy speaking with me. The full media release from the Queensland Human Rights Commission, along with a statement received from Queensland Corrective Services, is available on our website. A First Nations artist and his band is touring Queensland to promote reconciliation through music and history. John Vivi is from Hervey Bay, with cultural connections near Waradalbi, Chinchalla in Queensland, and also Vanuatu. Rekindle the Campfires is on tour and will be playing in Brisbane to inspire conversations around reconciliation with songs in First Nations languages and in English. The Wires' Eduardo Jordan asked John Vivi to explain more about his cultural background. I'm uh, Aboriginal. My country is out at uh, Warra, Chinchilla and up the uh, western side of the Bunya Mountains. I'm a cobble-cobble man and I speak Burrigam language. My great-grandmother got brought out here when she was 12 years old. And uh, then, uh, yeah, she stayed here. And uh, so uh, on that side, I'm a South Sea Islander too. So Fantastic. That's a very, uh, a very interesting cultural background. Thank you for sharing that. John, you're having a concert with your band, uh, Cobblestone Band, uh, and the concert is called uh, Rekindle the Campfires. Could yeah. you please tell us a little bit more about the performance and how it came into fruition? Well... How it came into fruition is that we we wanted to bring across reconciliation. Now, the the thing rekindled the campfire is that when we all sat around the campfire and told stories and they were handed down. So we thought, well, hang on, let's have a look into this and just find out what all over Australia, different things that happened prior to colonisation and after. And so my partner, Eric, she looked all into this and came back with these things. And what happened then is that we started to, I started to write songs in relation to different issues that, or different uh, incidents that happened while colonisation and prior to colonisation. And we thought, we'll put it into song, sort of like a theatre thing, and um, bring it across. And it's truth-telling on a perspective of the ancestors, what happened there. And it's not a blame and shame, it's an uplifting. That's where the reconciliation comes. So as you mentioned, reconciliation is a big part of this concert. Why yes. is reconciliation so important for you and the band and for the community to spark this conversation? Yes, well, reconciliation to me is, I suppose, for a want for a better word, but it's sharing different truths. And that's what it is. And that's one of the reasons why we, it is the reason that we put this uh, show together is to share the truth on that Indigenous perspective. Also to enable, say, libraries or schools for a conversational piece. You know, if they want to have a conversation, they could take this off the web, take either one song or the one incident and talk about it. And it's getting it out there, I think. I think it's what we want to try and do is get the message out there. And what would you like the audience uh, take from this concert? Well, as I say, it's rekindled the campfire. So we're going to be telling a story in relation to different issues that happen, like taking the children away. Also, we're going to tell the story of when the first fleet came over and what they went through. I mean, that was horrific in itself. And uh, so it's a sort of an open playing field and saying, look, you know, things happened here, but things happened there, you know. So I'm hoping the audience, when we've done other concerts down here in relation, we've done Rekindle the Campfire down here at the Brolga Theatre Plus at the Treehouse, people went away uplifted and open and were willing to talk about their ancestors, whether they be white, black or brindle. It was a really 
open and honest conversation. And that's what we want. So I understand that in the concert, there will be some First Nation languages uh, featured. How will this touch the audience into the reconciliation path you're aiming for? Yeah, well, we've got language from different parts of, of Australia. We've got um, a song, Mundai Mundai. Now, that was written by Auntie Joyce Bonner from the Butchler clan here at Harvey Bay. Now, it's also in language and it's also in English. So that comes out and that, that relates to all the women in the world, really. And it celebrates what we have, acknowledging that. We have um, language in Barragam language. That's my language. And it's also in English too. And we also have another song from Waka Waka people. The songwriter was Steve Hart. And his, he lives in Cherbo. Uh, and he tells the story of his mother. So this was part of that. Also, we had a songwriter, Paul Irvine. And he's from Canada and the Great Lakes, and he's a First Nations people over there. And he was singing, his song was They Were Children. So he tells the story of his. But yeah, so it's all in language and then brought down to English. Artist John Vivi speaking with The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. For more information on the concert, visit our website. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3ZZZ in Nam, Melbourne, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Emma Watsky. Coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.